Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter Do Deaf. So, what sort of week have you had, Phoebe? A good week, a very busy week, as usual. Um, But yeah, productive. I think the most exciting thing about the week is that we've got new microphones. So, uh, hopefully... Episode three. Episode three. three. (laughs) (laughs) We're really invested now. Uh, So, yeah, I think that that will make a big difference because I was very conscious that my sound wasn't great. So, hopefully, it sounds a little bit better with this uh, Amazon bargain microphone. Yeah, sounds pretty good. And hopefully mine does as well. Um, sounds great. Yeah. And of course, recording this over Zoom, I suppose, is always going to, we're always going to lose a bit of quality. Yeah. Is, I'm but... just disappointed in the AirPods, to be honest, because I'm, I'm quite attached to them. So I'm a bit disappointed <laughs> that they, they didn't really serve me. They're not, but they're not broadcast fine. quality, but they're they are brilliant. Quality, and I use mine all the time for other things. It's uh... good. Yeah. I mean, mine never out my ears. So, <laughs> how, how's your week been? Yes, all right. Still very busy with work. Mm. It hasn't stopped for for me at all. Um, uh, the weather's been changeable. Certainly not as cold as it was last week. Very wet. Yeah, um, I feel like the snow stayed for like a good amount of time, like long enough for us to be able to enjoy it, but not so long that it became really inconvenient. So yeah. that was good. Back yeah. to normal now, and uh, the hot tub is back up. So uh, it's officially locked down. The hot tub's up. So <laughs> that's something else for us to do. Something to look forward to. Yeah, my yeah. Uh, the only time I go out of the house is to do the one mile loop around the estate, which uh, is all right. You get to see some wildlife, the swans, the ducks on the lake and some squirrels and occasionally a fox in the woods. That's on the exciting. Way back up. But, I uh, saw a hare yesterday. Uh, in the field when I picked Toby up from nursery there was a hare in just trotting through the fields wow yeah, yeah unusual yeah so uh, but all this uh, time not going anywhere has uh, given us time to research our unusual murders the ones that Absolutely. Aren't, aren't quite so uh, well known no so I've got a duty for you this week I'm excited. It could be quite a long one. So okay. um, settle in. I'll settle in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> settle in. And um, yeah, so my my source of information for this one is fundamentally murderpedia.org. Um, that in turn, I think, is quoting Wikipedia. So, <laughs> but there are a number of uh, accounts of this particular individual Um there are other podcasts, quite recent ones, as it happens, about this guy. Um, so there is information out there, but you'd have to go to to look for him. Mm-hmm. And I literally stumbled across him. I was just looking at who else have we got in Europe? And I was looking through France because uh, my other podcast a couple of weeks ago, that was a French guy from 1860. And I don't know why I picked this one, but yeah, just appealed to me when I saw it. And I hope you find it interesting too. I'm excited. So it's uh, it, it gets complicated. I'll try and explain it the best I can. Do I need to make notes? <laughs> no, you're just uh, just sit back and enjoy it and uh, okay. see what you think. So this week, <laughs> Phoebe, I'm going to tell you about a French man called Marcel Petio. And if you want to look that up, it's Marcel M A R C E L Petio P E T I O T. Okay. He was born in 1897, uh, and uh, which, which was the year that my nan, your great 
grandmother, old nan. Yeah. Granddad's mum. That was the same year that she was born. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and he was born in the town of Auxerre, uh, in the near the Burgundy region of nice. France. As a child, he already showed signs of delinquency. Uh, during his childhood, uh, he was an awkward child in school. At one point, he brought a gun to school. I should do. He even uh, propositioned girls in his class for sex at the age of sort of eight or nine. <laughs> yeah, it's not on, is it? Things like that. <laughs> so he was already showing that he had issues at that early age. Did he kill the family pet? No, I don't believe he did, but he had many behavioural problems. He was expelled from school multiple times. And in 1914, he was he was diagnosed by a psychologist as having mental health issues. He eventually finished his education in July 1915, which was not long after the First World War broke out. So in July 1916, he was drafted into the French infantry at the age of 19. He was serving on the front when he was wounded, gassed and had a mental breakdown. He was then sent to a rest home to recover. But while he was actually in the uh, military rest home, he was arrested for stealing army blankets and (laughs) and jailed in Orléans for a period of time. (laughs) He was in and out of psychiatric hospital diagnosed with various mental illnesses and ailments, but uh, he was eventually returned to the front in June 1918. But he only did three weeks before he actually shot himself in the foot. He was again given a diagnosis, uh, a new diagnosis of, of mental illness, and he was discharged with a disability pension of 40% of his uh, army wages. Oh. I can't believe they let him enlist anyway because of his like mental history and then all that mental health stuff he'd been through. I can't believe they let him go back to the front. Well, yeah, they did. And you'll find that that is probably one of so many blunders that have taken place mm. in this bloke's life as, as he went on. Um, he actually had a review of his disability pension. And in 1920, it was increased to 100% of what his army salary would have been. Oh, wow. Yeah. So after the war, he was accepted onto an accelerated education programme for war veterans in France. Mm -hmm. And he actually completed a medical school course in eight months. He then spent two years carrying out a psychiatric internship in a mental hospital. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) So he's sort of gone full circle (laughs) from being a patient to actually being an intern. Um, It feels like the start of an American horror story series. (laughs) It turns into it, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) And at the end of uh, the two-year period, he actually obtained a medical degree from the Faculté de Médecins de Paris. So here he is in 1921 at the age of, what would that be, 24 as a qualified doctor. A lot's happened to him before the age of 24. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the next year, 1922, he actually moved to a town called Villeneuve-sur-Yon, which is um, sort of southeast of Paris. Okay. It's, it's outside of Paris, it's southeast of Paris. He practised as a doctor, and because he was young, he was sort of 25 by this age, he he 
cashed in on that effect. He had flyers printed and distributed around the town saying, come to me as your new young doctor. I'm young. I keep up with all the modern trends because there are only two elderly doctors serving in the town at the time. And he did actually attract a lot of patients and he was a very popular doctor. But this is when he started to act a little bit fraudulently because in those days, people used to pay all the time for medical treatment. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, it appears in France, you could get state assistance. So Mm -hmm. a bit like national health, I suppose, Mm -hmm. if someone couldn't pay for it. So what he started doing was enrolling these patients for state assistance and charging them. So he was getting double the money. Bit naughty. Yeah. He also had a habit, which continued for pretty much the rest of his life, of prescribing very addictive narcotics to these to his patients, which oh. for which they had to keep coming back for more and paying more. <laughs> so you can see that he's already starting to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He used to prescribe these strong narcotics so often that once a pharmacist commented that, you know, should he really be issuing such strong and frequent levels of these drugs? But uh, like everything else, no one seemed to take any action on him. But uh, in private, apparently, he was quite a loner. He didn't really have any friends. He was very argumentative, quite a sad, bitter but slowly becoming a criminal, (laughs) local doctor of the town. Um, And as well as, yeah, fraudulently claiming this money, he also developed a a theft habit to the point where if ever he visited his brother, Maurice, uh, his brother would insist on searching his pockets before he went home because he knew that he might be... uh, taking things away from his brother's house. And in fact, on one occasion, he was actually evicted from his apartment by a landlord because he actually stole furniture and fittings from the apartment and sold them. Yes. But what he would do if he was ever threatened with going to court, he would say, I'm a certified lunatic. I'll never be convicted. So he kept coming back to the fact that even though he was now... A qualified doctor he'd done this internship in a psychiatric hospital he still came back to the fact that he was um himself diagnosed with a psychiatric problem and remember that he's still on a hundred percent of oh, God, his yeah. army pension <laughs> he must be raking it in yeah yeah so in 1922 the commission de reforme which is probably equivalent of our department of work uh yeah, DWP, Department of Works oh, and yeah. Pensions, wanted to reassess his pension <laughs> that he was getting from the army, and he refused to have any further checks. Can you do that? <laughs> uh, well, you know, this is the time when things didn't move so fast then, did they? No. There was no internet. That's true. I couldn't just do a quick credit check on him. <laughs> no. Um, so he refused to have uh, his mental state formally assessed, for these disability payments so they didn't do anything they carried on paying him oh my god <laughs> so here we are here he is he's diagnosed with psychiatric problems he's a qualified doctor 
claiming fraudulent payments, overprescribing addictive drugs, and a recognised thief. Wow. In 1926, he started dating Louise Delavaux, the daughter of one of his elderly patients. Mm-hmm. Strangely, not long after that, the house was robbed and set on fire. Okay. Simultaneously, Louise disappeared. So this is, I think, they'd only been seeing each other for a few weeks or maybe a couple of months. Louise disappeared and she was never seen again. Now, neighbours claim to have seen Petio carrying a large trunk out of the house and loading it into the back of his car. Okay. A few weeks later, a similar trunk was fished out of a nearby river and in it were body parts. Oh, no. But they were never identified as actually being those of Louise Delavaux. The police recorded her disappearance as being a runaway. He was never charged based on this neighbour's sort of witness statement of seeing him carrying a trunk. There was no evidence or proof that he had anything to do with her disappearance. But circumstantial evidence might indicate that Louise Delavaux was his first murder victim. Mm. If only there'd been DNA in uh, 1926. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, later that same year, 1926, Petio actually ran for mayor of the town. Of course he did. <laughs> he, <laughs> um, his, his campaigning techniques weren't exactly orthodox. Um, wow, I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> he hired an accomplice to disrupt his opponent's political rallies and speeches. I've heard that um, before. He would go in and this, the, this, this accomplice would go into the opponent's rallies and debates and things. He would cause power cuts. He would set fires. He oh, my would, God. He would just cause mayhem in, in the opponent's rallies. Um, and as a result of all of that, when it came to the vote, Petio actually won by a landslide. <laughs> <laughs> so just to recap he's uh he's certified a psychiatric patient he's a corrupt doctor he's a kleptomaniac he's now a mayor suspected of stealing once he's in in place as, as mayor he's suspected of stealing money a bass drum from <laughs> from a local band and a stone cross that was in the town for some reason he was also incredibly divisive some people despised him they could see right through him and see what a a a bad character he was was. but others thought he was absolutely amazing and the best mayor they'd ever had so does that remind you of anybody that's Mm, uh... i was thinking that when you were saying earlier about his (laughs) campaigning techniques maybe it's a certain uh, ex-president's inspiration (laughs) you never know So, the year later, 1927, I mean, he packs an awful lot into his life. He really does, doesn't he? <laughs> so, in 1927, when he's 30 years old, he meets and marries Georgette Leblat, who is 23, daughter of a wealthy landowner. Mm-hmm. They have one child, a son called Gerhard, who is then born in April 1928. Okay. So, at the end of 1928... Um, he, he he's arrested 
for another piece of fraud that he carries out. He actually orders several drums of oil, presumably for heating or, or something uh, like that. They arrived, they were delivered, but he claimed that they didn't arrive. Uh, and he claimed a refund from the company. Now, in 1930, a court actually found him guilty of this, charged him 200 francs as a fine. Right. Which doesn't it's, sound like an awful lot. I'll say, is that, is that a lot? I don't know. Well, I don't know. There's some other big numbers coming up. So okay. in, in com- comparatively, it's quite a small, <laughs> small amount. Uh, and they sentenced him to three months in jail. So he was suspended as mayor, but uh, then he appealed. And, of course, they overturned his conviction because he is the upstanding pillar of the community, a well-liked doctor and a mayor. <laughs> I just keep thinking, like, Jean Valjean went through so much for just stealing <laughs> that loaf of bread. And he's done all of this stuff and he just keeps getting away from it. It doesn't seem fair. <laughs> so one night in March 1930, a fire broke out in the home of a dairy unionist, Armand de Beauvais. Then his wife, Henrietta, was found inside the burnt house, beaten to death with a blunt instrument. Oh, my God. Now, police suspected murder during a robbery and 20,000 francs was found to be missing. So that's quite a difference from the 200 francs he was fined for the the oil escapade. There were footprints that led across the nearby fields towards the town of Villeneuve-Sillon. And rumours spread that Henrietta de Bove was actually Dr. Petio's mistress <gasps> and that he had been seen near her home on the night of the crime. Now, the witness in that case, a Monsieur Fisco, declared his plans to testify against Dr. Petio. But during all this, he actually went to see Dr. Petio because he was looking for treatment for rheumatism. <laughs> Right. So, so Dr. Petio said, oh, I think you need an injection. <laughs> but Gave me an injection. Three hours later, Monsieur Fisco was dead. Oh, that's and a surprise. the doctor filled out a death certificate blaming his death on an aneurysm. Wow. Can you believe that? Oh, that's such a coincidence. Yeah. Anyway, time went on. He got into more trouble. There were plenty more escapades that uh, that he got into. He's still mayor, don't forget. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He was carrying out more fraud. He actually stole electricity. There were multiple complaints against him. He was sentenced to various short periods in jail and given small fines. And eventually he did resign as mayor. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And ultimately, he lost his council seat. So he he was just on the council, but it all just got too much. So um, I think he knew when enough was enough. So so he then moved him and his family to Paris in 1933. Again, he started promoting himself as a doctor with all these fantastic credentials. Some were real. Some of them he'd made up to make it look good on on the, on his CV, as it were. And he put up a large brass plaque full of these claims outside his house. But another doctor complained, and eventually the authorities made him take it down. But he was a popular doctor. And right. even later on in his life, when you'll find out the other terrible things he got up to, 
even later on in his life, when when patients of his are interviewed, none of them had a bad word to say about him. That's really interesting. So that reminds me of um, Harold Shipman to a certain extent. I was thinking that when you were saying when he was um, prescribing narcotics yeah. and stuff, I was thinking that sounds like Shipman, yeah. Yeah, and giving people injections and then yeah. dying. I mean, that's another And then taking story. their money. <laughs> what did he, though? Oh, yes, he did, yeah. didn't he? He got them to change their wills and things yeah. in his favour. That's how it? he got caught, isn't it? Yeah. Because right at the end, he was just a bit sloppy with it. And that's, that's how. Right, that's yeah. the only way that he got caught. He's been getting away with it for years and years and years. So that was by changing their wills and things. In this case, yeah. he just blatantly steals stuff. Them, it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there was less uh, less systems to go through in 1930s France. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he's practising as a doctor in Paris now, and there are rumours circulating that he is actually carrying out abortions, uh, which were illegal oh, no. at the time. And he was still supplying drugs on a regular basis, prescribing them as cures, but really he was feeding addicts with their habit, basically. And I presume charging them for it, so making money out of that. I can't think of any other reason why he would have been prescribing these drugs if if he wasn't going to get some sort of gain out of himself. No, he's not particularly altruistic, is he? No, no, he's not. (laughs) And there was one strange instrument, a, a young lady called Raymond... Raymond Hunts, um, she went to him having an abscess in her mouth mm-hmm. and he was going to operate on this abscess. Um, he gave her some sort of injections which knocked her out and he actually drove her back home, still unconscious, and carried her out of the car and she was living with her mother, I think, still. She was only a young, young lady. Several hours later, she never regained consciousness and she died. Oh, my God. Um the mother demanded an autopsy to be carried out, which in those days, I suppose, so what are we, we're 1933 here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, in those days, wouldn't have been quite so easy to get hold of. But when they did, they discovered there was a very high level of morphine in her system. Wow. But it never, he never got charged for that. The case was closed. That's crazy. Uh, and... Her cause of death was put down to natural causes. What well, that though, naturally occurring morphine? That naturally occurring morphine in her body, which, uh, yeah. <gasps> okay. <laughs> so it gets weirder now. A couple of years later, 1936. So despite various investigations for his behaviour with drugs, shall we say, the fact that he uh, prescribes them so much, there's no indication that he actually takes them himself, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, he's known to be a bit um, free and easy with the way he prescribes them. He's actually appointed the médecin d'état civil, which okay. means that he has the authority to sign death certificates. Oh, now, that's interesting. So it wasn't long before he started abusing that position. He visited the house of an elderly gentleman who had died to, to well, I suppose, to inspect the body. And to sign the death certificate, he stole 74,000 francs from the dead man's home. Oh, my God. <laughs> he, uh, his kleptomania just kept kicking in. He, in the same year, he stole a book from a book sh- from a bookshop. And in the process, he actually assaulted a policeman, injuring the policeman. Um, he pleaded for mercy 
inciting his insanity, going back to his claim of being de- declared mm. you know, a psychiatric patient. But he was actually sent to a sanatorium for some sort of mm, treatment and recovery in August wow. 1936. But almost immediately, he discharged himself, saying that he's fine, he's better now. So uh, I don't think he's insane. I think he's very, very clever. He be, I think he is very, very clever. Yeah, he uses these things when he, when he, uh, when he can mm. uh, to his advantage. <laughs> so yeah, when it suits him, he can claim he's the lunatic. Otherwise, though, yeah, he's just being artful. Mm. So after that incident, it, he lives a fairly quiet existence for a couple of years. Um, the only thing that I could find out about his time between sort of 1937 and 1939, 1940, was that he was carrying out tax fraud. Um, oh, just just a bit of tax fraud. Yeah, just a bit of tax fraud. <laughs> it was found out that he declared virtually none of his income that he was getting as a doctor, which I would mm. imagine would have been quite a quite a reasonable amount. Yeah, you'd imagine so. Yeah. So, end of the 1930s, what happens? World, World War II. II breaks out, exactly. Yeah. And, of course, France is occupied. Mm-hmm. Paris is seized by Germany and 40,000 soldiers surrender. It's, uh, yeah. The Nazis are, are basically in control across France. Yeah. The resistance starts to rise. So Petiot sees an opportunity here. The Germans are taking French people and making them do slave labour, basically. Mm-hmm. So Petio sees an, an opportunity with this, and mm-hmm. he starts issuing false medical certificates to excuse Frenchmen from having to be drafted into doing this slave labour for the Germans, for a fee, of course. And, uh, yeah, it's just the start of his wartime escapades. Now, he's living somewhere in an apartment with his wife and and son. But in 1941, he also bought a house at number 21, Rue de la Sur. Now, the pictures I've seen of it, there are plenty of pictures on out there for this for this person. Okay, Uh, it's a huge, big house, big terraced house in the middle of Paris. Um, He's got this gorgeous house, uh, but he carries on doing all the drug over-prescribing with the medical certificates. Um, he even starts claiming that he's invented secret weapons now we're into the war. Right. And, and, and that he's, he makes up these stories that he's killed Germans, uh, all very fanciful. He's, he's just living in this fantasy world where, yeah, he's imagining all this stuff. He's doing all these bad things, making lots of money. And he then creates something which he calls flytox which is an escape route okay flytox at the time was the name of a popular insecticide in france so this escape route was something he invented allegedly to allow people that were going to be persecuted by the nazis so jews uh, other criminals resistance fighters gave them an opportunity to escape france okay 
escape the clutch of the Nazis. Now, he used a codename of Dr. Eugene, and he had three accomplices, three aides, Raoul Fourier, Edmund Pitard, and René Gustave Nezonde. And what he would do is he would send these people out to scout around looking for the, the, the sorts of people that would probably want to uh, escape the clutches of the Nazis mm-hmm. and point them in Dr. Eugene's direction. Now, the claim was that he could arrange safe passage for these people to South America. Okay. Particularly Argentina through Portugal. And for this, he would charge them 25,000 francs. So a bit of people trafficking again, yeah. residents with what's going on in with asylum seekers today, where they're yeah. paying people to get them out. So he would charge them 25,000 francs. He would claim, though, that Argentina insists that for anybody to enter the country, they must have certain inoculations. Oh, um. So he would take them to this beautiful great big house at 21 Rue de la Sur, inject them as part of the thing, but of course he was actually injecting them with cyanide. Oh, God. And, yeah, they died almost immediately. They were probably loaded up with their valuables ready for their journey to South to South America. So he's had their 25,000 francs. He steals all of their valuables. And he just disposes of their bodies. Oh, my God. I know. To start with, he used to just, like, dismember them and drop their bits in the River Seine. Oh. These various things would uh, would, would would be found in the river. Oh. Uh, but then he started actually disposing of them actually in the house. When, oh, uh, w- Yeah. <laughs> he actually had a, a quicklime pit in the cellar. It's like uh, a, such an amalgamation of all these serial killers. Like, it's where John Wayne Gacy got his ideas from. <laughs> it could be. It could be. He actually had a quicklime pit in the cellar, and he also took to burning them in, like, a, a stove. Um, and, again, uh, there are pictures, and we'll, we'll put some onto the Instagram page, yeah. but there's pictures of, of the cellar, of the pit in the cellar, and of the uh, the sort of the, oh the burner, the the stove, I suppose you call it, that he was burning bodies on. So um, he was never, well, to begin with, he wasn't actually found out for this, uh, for these murders, but Germans did find out about this escape route. They re- okay. they found out that Jews and whatever were, were escaping them, uh, and they actually captured those three aides, Fourier, Pitard, and uh, Nizonde. And they basically tortured them to find out what was going on. The Germans oh. tortured these guys to find out what was going on. And eventually they 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 admitted that this Dr. Eugene was actually Petio himself that was that was doing this. Um around about the same sort of time, neighbours reported this terrible smell that was coming mm. from the house. It's gonna happen, isn't it? Yeah. We've got dead bodies in the cellar. <laughs> dead bodies which you are burning. <laughs> so they called the police the police knocked on the door the house was empty and they break in and they find this fire is is going on inside the house and in this in this stove 
which is well and truly on fire, a l- quite a number of body parts. Now, he wasn't there, but they managed to get in touch with him, uh, and he came back to the house. What? And it, yeah, and he actually claimed to the police that these were bodies of German traitors. And as he was part of the resistance that was dealing with these German traitors, they, he kind of gained their approval. And and they sort of didn't take any further action. Oh which, my god! <laughs> which which seems completely bonkers. Like oh, oh yeah, those bodies. No, they're just Germans. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's fine. Oh yeah, cool. Yeah, go ahead. Keep burning them. Jesus. So they didn't actually arrest him at that time, but they did carry out more investigations to find out what was going on. That's when they found the quicklime pit, countless bodies and body parts. There's a root that well, there's the report of a, a great big sack that was on the cellar steps that was full of various bits of Ooh. bodies and things, um, which must have come from at least 10 different people. They oh my god, calculated. So, though he, he hadn't been arrested, he was still free. Um, the police wanted to investigate whether or not he was actually killing these people for the resistance. Or for the Gestapo, who okay. was he actually working for? In actual truth, he wasn't working for either. He was, for himself. <laughs> he was just doing this himself, yeah. just to get their self-employed 20, murderer. <laughs> just, just to get the yeah, just to get their twenty-five thousand francs and steal all their whatever they had on them. Um, um, but then the Germans ordered the ordered the police to arrest Petio because of what they'd learned when they arrested the the three accomplices, that he was smuggling Jews out of the country. At that point, the police did actually find a man who Petio had actually offered this safe transport out of France to South America for 25,000 francs, but this man didn't take him up on his offer, so he actually escaped, Uh, but he was able to be a witness in the case. (gasps) You. (laughs) So they did actually arrest him at that point uh, okay. because they realised something was was not right. So Petio's brother, Maurice, uh, he actually confessed to delivering the quick line that was in the uh, lime pit. Do you remember that's that's Maurice who used to accuse his brother of theft whenever he went round to see him all those years ago? Oh, Maurice, I thought you were a goodie. <laughs> so Maurice was charged with conspiracy to murder and jailed. Georgette his wife, who we haven't really heard much of in this story, but uh, she was also arrested on suspicion of aiding her husband. Uh, And the three accomplices were re-arrested by the police this time, not not Mm -hmm. just captured by the Germans. So a case was building up against him with all these witnesses that they'd they'd arrested. But then suddenly everything had to come to a stop because June the 6th, 1944, was D-Day when the Allies landed on the beaches of France and started reclaiming France. Okay. The whole whole of Paris was in, in disarray as a result of all of this. And uh, Petio took an adva- advantage of this lull in the proceedings and disappeared himself. Oh, no. For seven months. He... <gasps> He lived in various places, staying with people, even one of his patients. Um, and he changed his appearance. He grew a beard uh, and, he, and he took on various aliases so oh, that wow. he wouldn't be recognised. 
The resistance and the Paris police started to rise up against the German troops in Paris. Petio adopted the name Henri Valéry and joined the French forces of the interior, the FFI. And he actually became a captain in charge of counter-espionage and prisoner interrogations. This is, yeah. (laughs) So he's a completely different person. He's working under an alias. Um, A newspaper called Resistance published an article about him in this role. Uh, And then he was recognised as as being Dr. Petio. So Ah. it it made police realise he actually was still in the Paris area. The search for him started and because of his role as being part of the French forces of the interior, he was actually drafted in his alias as Henry Valéry, to look for himself. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. a great way not to be found if like, I have no idea where this person is. <laughs> so he was actually drafted to, to actually look for himself. Eventually, Petio was recognised while he was in a Paris metro station. Someone that knew him, recognised him, raised the alarm, and he was arrested. And amongst his possessions at the time were a pistol, 31,700 francs, and 50 sets of identity documents. Oh, my God. Presumably the ones that he'd uh, stolen from the people that he'd uh, injected and killed as part of his escape route. He was held on remand, and his trial started on the 19th of March, 1946. So a little while after the war ended. Um, Because, yeah, there'd been D-Day. He'd been on the run for seven or eight months. They'd found him, arrested him, and I suppose they had to build up the case against him. Yeah. Yeah. He was actually uh, charged with 135 separate counts oh wow that's quite a lot of counts uh he was he was charged with 27 murders of these people that they found in the house some of whom they identified some of them they didn't but i think they knew there were a lot more than that Mm -hmm. uh he actually admitted to 19 of those murders (laughs) wow okay um yeah so he was found guilty obviously and there is actually a little piece of video, which, again, I'll try and get that up onto the Instagram page. It's only um, about a minute, minute and a half long. It's silent, but it's actual footage from the court case. No way. Yeah, and it's 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 fascinating because um, he's there and there's all these various legal people around him. And every now and again, it will pan out. And it's absolutely packed with people. It's more like a theatre than a wow. courtroom. It, it's, it's huge. So many people are there. It's amazing. So he was sentenced to death for his crimes. And the way that he was executed was by guillotine. Oh, wow. Now, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked about with uh, Joseph Philippe that he was executed by guillotine in 1866. Well, here we are in 1946. What's that, 80 years later? God, yeah. And they're still using the guillotine, which surprised me. Yeah, that's true, actually. That seems like really recent to still be chopping people's heads off. Yeah, yeah. Well, hold that thought. So the trial started on March the 19th, 1946. 
He was sentenced to death and he was actually executed on May the 25th, 1946. So he wasn't on death row for very long. He was not, was he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right about the guillotine. I, I was really surprised. It was invented in 1789 by Ignace Guillotine. That's where it gets its name from. Who was really looking for a way of executing people more humanely because back in the... in 1700s it was only done with chopping off heads was done with axes and swords and things like that and he wanted a a cleaner less botchable way of doing it and hence the guillotine yeah um but because he was more of a pro-life sort of guy he was absolutely horrified when this machine actually ended up bearing his name (laughs) um but anyway yeah, so it was invented in, or first used in 1789. We know it was used in 1866. It's now being used in 1946. Now, to my surprise, the last time that an execution was carried out in France by guillotine was in 1977. Oh, my God. And it wasn't until 1981 when the death penalty was abolished in France that the use of the guillotine stopped. Oh, my God. And, and I just can't imagine. I you kind of think of the guillotine being used in sort of, well, olden times. Yeah, you know, like with, Mary Antoinette. Yeah, like, with with the basket and all the people yeah. standing around cheering and going out for a day's entertainment to see these yeah. heads being chopped off and blood must have been spurting everywhere. But when you think of it in, in 1977, how did they do it? Was That's it in a... Bonkers. It wouldn't have been outdoors in a public square or anything, I wouldn't have thought. And... I don't know, it's France. <laughs> um, was it done inside a prison? And what did they... I don't, I, yeah. Is it like, like hanging? Because they still hang people, don't they? they? Do, but... but they do that much more clinically now. So maybe yeah. it was like that in that sort of... But how kind do you of... clinically chop someone's head off? And... I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, the sheer amount of blood that must have been involved with chopping someone's head off i can't believe that um the death penalty wasn't got rid of in france until 1981 either yeah yeah 1981 and the last time well i mean i suppose the last time they hang hanged someone in the uk was in 1950 no was it 1962 60s ruth ellis she's a lot she was the last woman to have been she was in hall wasn't she i think she was in yeah but that was hanging, but it just seems a bit more bad yeah. at the guillotine. Like chopping somebody's head off. <laughs> and to have been using that quite so recent. Anyway, sorry, yeah. we, we, we're fixating on the guillotine now. But I My was mind just, is blown. I, I was just amazed by that. Anyway, there we go. He um, he came to an end in 1946. So what was he 49 years old or something, and he'd clearly packed an awful lot into it. <laughs> he was still uh, only 49. He still was only 49. He'd done all of that. Wow. <laughs> Claiming to be a lunatic and psych- psychiatrically ill didn't help him then. No. So there we go. As I say, there is quite a lot of information about him if you know to look for it, I think, is the, is, is the, the case there. Um, there is actually a film from 1990. And it's called Dr. Petitieu. Okay. Um, there's references. Ref, there are references to it on IMDb. I believe it cool. is all in French. Um, it's a French film. But whether or not there's a subtitle <laughs> version, I don't know. But, 
Yeah, and there are, as I said, there are various other podcasts. There's quite a lot of pictures out there of him. Um, fascinating story. That's it's, amazing. What a, what, an, what an incredible story. Yeah, and really quite modern as well. And like the backdrop that it happened against, like war-torn yeah. France across both world wars, and how he used that to kill all those people. And yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah. What a story. Yeah, what taking a... advantage of the Jews and the, the, the people that have been persecuted by, by the Nazis. Yeah. What an awful man. Occupied France. Basically, yeah. Yeah, on so yeah. many levels. <laughs> Completely. He was just wrong <laughs> from the start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was just wrong. At least the family pet was okay. <laughs> uh, as far as we know. Yeah. As far as we know. <laughs> Just all those other people that he killed and buried in his basement or <laughs> in his kitchen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So well, I thanks. don't know what they must have found when they went into that house, but wow, God. indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you for got away with so many things. No, you're welcome. Um, Great story. Yes, I was <laughs> just surprised at it. Uh, yeah. So many twists and turns, and so many ridiculous things and like you said at the beginning like so many places for him to have been stopped but he wasn't and yeah yeah I, I always think things like that and I was thinking this about the other case you did people wouldn't get away with stuff like that now would they they just no. wouldn't be they would not be able to they wouldn't be able to do those things with the technology we've got now which is good but then also kind of I guess sad for the people that they did end up killing because in different time different place they wouldn't have been murdered yeah yeah, it, it just has so many resonances, though. Like um, the the fact that he claimed that to travel to South America, you had to have certain injections, certain mm. vaccinations. Well, you know, there's something similar starting yeah. now, isn't there? With a va- uh, vaccine passport. <laughs> yeah, and in the news today, um, there was something on the in the news I saw that. You, people may be at risk of losing their jobs or you can't mm. be offered a job unless you can prove you've had a vaccine or, or you know it's, it's starting to become yeah almost weaponized <laughs> that's really sad about the fact that obviously we know what happened to jews and similar people and the people that were kind of deported from france um during that time and the fact that they were so scared and they wanted this way out and then actually they literally ended up having the same thing done to them that would have happened to them if they'd have got deported by the germans and they've had to pay twenty five thousand well, francs for the I privilege mean... Yeah, if you put it in that sort of context, I suppose you could argue that getting a swift injection of cyanide was better than yeah, being carted off to a concentration camp. And, that's very true. But, um, yeah, but they're still chopped up and oh, yeah. put no, in it, awful pits it, it, it and burns like that. But, he yeah. just took advantage of so many people. It's just bonkers that he got away with it for such a long time. He, he I think you're right, he was just so clever. Yeah. He just played the system. Absolutely. He played yeah, the system all the way through. Being mayor. <laughs> to being s- s- yeah. Like you said, lots of resonances with um, you know, some other recent political leaders and things that maybe they've done or not done that you know you can look at at that is is interesting. Manipulative. Yeah, narcissistic. And divisive. Maybe <laughs> psychopathic. <laughs> All right, well, there you go. That's the story of uh, 
Marcel Petio. Thank you very much. Look him up. Look at our Instagram page. We'll put some pictures of him and places that feature in his story. I'm excited to see the video of him in court. Yeah, I'll get that up there as well so you can see that. Yeah, Yeah. I'm sure he didn't uh, take that court case lying down. That's for sure. He'd have argued every step of the way. (laughs) I wonder how much he played his lunatic card. Um, It obviously didn't work for him, though, did it? And there is so much more information if you want to read up about him. There's so many other cases and twists and turns and things that I just haven't covered mm. in this podcast because we'd be here for days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, there we go. That's great. Thank you very much. I'm excited for next time. I've got a, I've got a great case for you next week, a bit different from stuff we've looked at so far. So I'm excited to share that with you next week. So join us again. We're once again, Dad. And daughter, do death.